All right, uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. I'm not, uh, I don't know how many of you guys are kind of users of YouTube. You know, they have this button on there. Only people like myself who have no life actually do this, but um, there's a thing on there called trending. You ever seen that trending section where it just shows you the popular videos? There was one that came on a couple of months ago that I thought was just humorous, and it reminded me of of the church, and that would be, there was a guy who uh, had surgery, and his wife was there filming him coming out of anesthesia. Anybody see this one? It's hysterical. He doesn't recognize his wife, doesn't know he's married, and and can't believe how beautiful she is. So he's going, you're so awesome. You're beautiful. Have we ever kissed? He's doing that whole... And, and she's laughing and, and everything. Just reminded me of a couple of points, gentlemen. Never forget you're married. That would be one. Um, <laughs> but the second thing is it sort of reminded me of the church. And here's what I mean by that. The scriptures say that we are the bride of Jesus. Ephesians 5 talks about uh, how the relationship between a husband and wife works, that we're to emulate Jesus, how he loves the church and gave himself up for her. And yet I think there's a lot of times where we... Uh, as a church, forget that we're married to Jesus. We forget that we're connected to him and united with him, and, and so uh, we don't necessarily feel like it or talk like it or act like it, but the reality of it is, biblically, it's, it's true. We've seen in uh, the first five and a half chapters of Romans, Paul declaring to the church an absolute certain truth of our union with Jesus based on faith alone, not by works or religion, that a sinner can have his sins forgiven and dealt with and righteousness provided in Christ by faith, okay? In fact, Paul, um, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read to you another version of Paul's argument in the first five chapters of Romans. In in Ephesians chapter two, one of my favorite passages describing the overwhelming size of God's grace to, to sinners, he describes it this way. He says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4 he says, But God, being rich and mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. There's four verses that pretty much sum up the first five chapters of Romans. Our problem, our sin is so deep, so, so scarred that it took a holy God to come to this earth, take on flesh, and die in our place. And that's the wonderful story of the gospel, the good news that sinners can be saved, that we've studied for five and a half, six months now. But we're in a section in chapter 6 of Romans where Paul is making a transition from, from what, what saves a sinner from their sins, what saves a person from being dead in their transgressions and sins, to how they're now changed. Is it possible that people can do more than just believe in a future hope about salvation and heaven someday, but that maybe believing in Jesus actually makes people different now? Like we could go and live holy lives and see sin that we used to struggle with defeated in our life. So maybe that's what I think Paul is talking about in in chapter 6, how we're changed. And I've told you that these two truths, salvation and transformation, are inseparably linked. And there are some who've tried to say to the church that, no, you you can be saved. You can experience the grace of God. You can have a Savior. His name is Jesus, but your life will never look like it. And I don't believe that's true. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches that God doesn't save people. He doesn't also transform. And I'm not talking about perfection. 
I'm not talking about uniformity. I'm not saying that there is one way to grow and everyone should be on that path and everyone should look the same. I'm just suggesting if you look back at your life before Jesus and you see no faith differences and no life differences, no decision differences, no value differences, no worship differences, there's no change. God has done nothing for you. You believe in Jesus, but nothing, then I'm suggesting you better read this again because it isn't true. God doesn't save people and leave them unchanged. So just like, just I was sitting in the back for the last uh, couple services listening to worship. I'm like, I gotta go out there. This is crazy. When the church really gets Jesus and gets the gospel and starts singing its, its kingdom perspective and who they are as the church, something happens to us. I'm suggesting to you, even your ability to worship at that level is a description and a sign of change that God brought because before Jesus, that didn't happen, right? So there has to be something, some signs of life. And, and so Paul is talking about how the church experiences um, that change. And he's been throwing around a word um, that I think helps us understand how it's possible. If you're a doubter in the house today, if you're somehow suggesting that, man, I don't know, man, my life says more about my, the inability of change than change, I'm gonna suggest to you this word, united, is the key to understanding how transformation happens. Paul has used this word several times to understand the implication of what it is of Jesus' death and his resurrection that somehow for us, because of our faith in Jesus, there is now a break of sin in my life and now there is this new life that comes out of me. And it's absolutely huge that we get this. Paul is talking about victory, okay? When I was a kid, I used to hear preachers talk about victory and it seemed like, some, like a sentence in another language. I didn't know what they were talking about. Well, as a grown person who's experienced more failure probably than wins, I love that word. Now, I have to confess sometimes I wonder if it's possible because I don't feel so victorious sometimes, but I pray for that word. I pray that that's true, that there's victory in Christ. And I know like spiritually there is victory over the penalty of sin because I don't have to die for my sin, although that's, a, that's the consequence to sin. God turned his wrath for my sin on his son and I'm free from the penalty. I now also am receiving the power of God and victory over sin. And, and ultimately, Paul talks about the practice. But if I look at my life, I'm going to make a confession. I am sick of me, sick of my mind. I'm sick of my behaviors and my habits. I'm sick of me. I, I know my tendencies. I know my inclinations. And uh, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I'm sick of you too. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, is not anybody specific, but I watch the church say they love Jesus. They've been transformed by Jesus, and yet we have a tendency to hurt each other. We have no problem grieving the heart of God in our sin. The church doesn't even know or act like it's married to Jesus. And so all that sin, all that gore, all that hurt, all the gossip, all the slander, all the wounds, all the reputations, all that stuff, I look at it and go, okay, Jesus didn't die for that. And Paul, I think, in this description is really talking about how sin really stinks. And he's basically saying there is a key to overcoming that kind of sin. And the whole point of his passage is our union with Christ. Some of this is going to seem like review. In fact, we've spent a couple of weeks talking about one aspect of what Paul says today. But I, I've told you the last couple of weeks, we are going to go through this because Paul goes through this. Somehow God and his Holy Spirit through Paul to us is saying, listen, let me, just, let me just bury you on these thoughts. 
Don't get tired of these thoughts because if you're, if you're sitting in here today and going, I wish I knew that victory. I wish I could overcome that sin. I wish I could see some hope in my life. Then you better listen because Paul has only given us a few things to think about in order to see that victory happen, okay? So I wanna go through it again with you this morning. It is the key to understanding um, overcoming that sin, and that is our union with Christ. Or to put it another way, Paul says we don't live in sin like we used to live because we're not the same people we used to be because we are resurrected people, amen? That's what the scriptures describe here in Romans. So I want us to read these first uh, 11 verses again. We're gonna get in the context. It's actually verses eight through 11 is our passage today, but I think it helps us to see Paul's argument reading all 11. So if you don't own a Bible, uh, don't have one, we'll have it up on the screen for you. If you don't own one, if you go back to our bookstore in the back of our campus, uh, Aaron and his team will give you one free of charge. So uh, we'd love for you to have the scriptures. All right, let's read Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's God's word. Let's pray together. God, somehow in the mind of Christ, through the Holy Spirit to Paul, here it is for us today. This wonderful truth that sinners can be transformed and the old habits and inclinations of sin can be changed uh, into godly lives. And God, I, I have to believe that there are lots of us in this room that sometimes wonder if that's even possible, that there's some struggle with some uh, debilitating sin that... Uh, we've just kind of tapped out on. God, I pray uh, today that you would let us see the hope of the gospel and what it means for us and the sin that we uh, have a tendency to go back to. God, we pray for your help. We pray for your intercession. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Paul in this section is just basically repeating himself, but I would suggest to you also intensifying his argument. I mean, I think in these first 14 verses of chapter six, he says it, says it again a little bit louder, says it again a little bit louder. He's just getting big about what Christ uh, and his death and resurrection means to us. So I've kind of broke this small section of scripture down to two truths and one practice. So if you're an outliner and you like to kind of maintain what we're doing here, uh, Paul repeats two truths and gives us one thing to do. Here's the first truth, and we've covered it several times before, but if you're going to overcome sin, then Paul says to know that you're totally united with Jesus in his his death. In fact, verse 8 tells us, uh, 
clearly, for if we have died with Christ. Now, he's not suggesting if that's possible. He's saying since. It's a better render of what he's saying here. Since we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We have spent time on this already, so this is review, but if, if it needs our attention because I believe this victory is here. So Jesus died to sin, and our faith in Jesus, our united with Jesus, means that what implies about sin for him gets implied to us. So let me just cover this again. Jesus, when he came to this earth, was in a phase of his life, a season of his life where he was in sin. Now, what I mean by that is he didn't sin, he didn't commit a sin, but he came and dealt with sin. He came to die for sin, to pay for sin, to experience the weight of sin and the pain of sin against him, right? He came to defeat it for his people. And the scriptures say here in verses nine and 10, and it was never to be repeated again. Jesus doesn't have to go back to the cross to deal with the perpetual sin of his people. One time sacrifice, one time settle, okay? It's done. Jesus doesn't have to die again, doesn't have to come in and deal deal with sin again. And Paul simply says, the finality of Jesus' relationship with sin is exactly your finality and your relationship to sin in the past, okay? So in other words, we've described it this way, that our old life before we came to faith in Christ was a life where there was this sin thing called the slave master, the old self. It told me what to do, and I couldn't stop myself. I had no hope, right? The scriptures say that we were dead in our transgressions and sin. Dead people don't perceive life. We don't think good thoughts. We don't do good actions. In fact, the Bible says your motives are jacked up, and it's bad as it could possibly be. So even, even if you offered whatever best thing you could offer compared to God's holy standard, it comes up short. And so we are stuck on sin and broken, okay? And Paul says that just like Jesus' relationship to sin was over, the tyranny of sin for us is over. That, that place where there's a dictator in our life, an identity is over too. In other words, Paul is saying basically what he said at the end of chapter 5, that relationship to the old man, Adam, is over, and there's a new one living, and that's, that's Christ in us. So as Augustine said, at one point, we were not able not to sin. That's all we could do. Now we're free. You get it? So Jesus died to sin, and we are somehow united with that death to sin as well. And I got it. We've said this before, but please listen, because it's key. If you remove this part from the description of how we find victory over sin, you're going to miss the, the, the argument of Paul in the gospel, okay? Paul is talking about a truth. And the reason why I'm saying that is because we don't feel crucified to sin, do we? I mean, just be honest. You don't feel so crucified, old man dead, when it comes to your pride, when it starts to rise up, when somebody treats you the way you don't want to be treated, right? When you go back to those places of comfort and control to manage your life that's out of control, um, you don't feel so much like this old man's dead, do you? You feel like he's still alive and well and healthy. And yet, Paul says, listen, the victory to sin is understanding the truth that that old man is dead and this new man is alive. It's something we got to believe because God says it. He declares it. In fact, the the word that Paul has been using from verse 5 on is this word united. We told you it meant really joined at birth or fused into one or the picture of grafting one plant branch into the root system of another one. That whole idea of getting its life source and its its future from that root system is a depiction of what it's like to 
come to Christ and have the old man die. And Paul says, since that's true, since you're united with Jesus in his death, simply means that what happened to Christ happened to us. Now, it's not that we were transferred 2,000 years ago, and we were somewhere near Jesus on the cross physically. This is a spiritual transformation. This is a spiritual journey that God has done. And John MacArthur says this about this condition. He says, it was an unfathomable divine miracle that we were taken back 2,000 years, as it were, and made to participate in our Savior's death to be buried with him. The purpose of this divine act was to bring us through death, which paid the penalty for sin, and resurrect us to walk in newness of life. In other words, uh, as Paul describes us before Jesus, he calls us the old self, right? The old self that couldn't do anything but sin had to be killed so that a new and living and changed person could walk free in new life for the first time ever, able not to sin. I had somebody text me last week after I got done giving you that kind of three-step thing that Augustine said, you know. In, in Adam, he was able to sin because given the choice in the garden, hey, God's holding out on you, he did sin. Adam then plunged humanity into this condition where we're not able not to sin. All we could do is sin. Our righteous robes didn't get us anywhere and ultimately brings us to Christ and his covering for us that frees man for the first time to, not, to be able not to sin. That one condition is new to Jesus' people, to people who trust in Christ. And someone texted me last week and said, hey, what are you saying here that we're gonna be perfect? And no, no, you're gonna struggle with sin. I'm just, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You don't have to. So the math is real easy. The only reason you sin is because you want to. That's it. Nobody's pushing you around. There's not an old man inside of you telling you that you should do this. You don't have to do it anymore. Jesus killed that old man. There's a new man living inside of you, right? The only reason we ever choose to sin is because we make that willful choice to do it. And then Paul adds to that idea of what happens. What's the so what to God killing that old flesh in me? He says that he reminds us that there's still this body of sin hanging around. And we told you that the body of sin is really just the flesh that has inclinations and tendencies and habits developed in it over time and, and years that has a tendency to keep responding as if the old slave master has any authority. So we use the picture of slavery and said it's basically like a slave who's been totally emancipated and he's free, who runs into his former master and because he's so accustomed to listening to his master, he forgets that he's free not to. That's what it's like for Christians who sin. When the voice of flesh says, hey, you know, that would be really good, or that would feel right, or that would be better, or you'd be happy. Those are the old track marks of behavior when an old man was doing the talking, and we just have a tendency to listen and, and go that way, but we don't have to. And if I'm honest about my own spiritual life, um, and most of my friends and I believe most of everybody in this room, we would say, confess right out loud, it's still really, really hard. I mean, I got it. Okay, it's easy to say, Paul said, your old man has been crucified with Christ, baptized, identified with, in union with Jesus, so that man is dead too, but I still struggle, so why is it so hard? I'm gonna suggest to you a couple reasons. One of them is maybe you've never heard this before. 
Maybe for you, somebody told you the gospel was simply you come to Jesus and you get fire insurance. You get a future hope for tomorrow. You get to go to heaven someday. And when you get to heaven, it'll all be good. But this side of heaven, they've never told you about victory or obedience or how God transforms a life. They never told you about the Holy Spirit and how he affects you. He never told you about how God will not tolerate his kids wandering off because he's really passionate about our obedience. They never told you that. They simply said, hey, would you want to add Jesus to your collection? And so you know how to spell Jesus. You might be okay with the gospel in as much as it's been presented that tomorrow, someday when you die, you don't have to go to the bad place. You get to go to the good place. And so maybe you look at your life of sin and go, wait a minute, he's talking about freedom from sin and death to sin. And like, I don't feel that dead to sin. And maybe it's simply because you've been poorly taught. No one ever told you that God's not just coming after your soul to bring it to heaven. He's coming after your life to bring it to change. Maybe no one ever told you that. Maybe, um, maybe, and I believe this is true, maybe Satan just really, really, really doesn't want to let go. He's used to uh, being in charge, still thinks he's in charge. He's really confused. But So we have, uh, we have an adversary who would love nothing more than to have Christians live as if he was still in charge. And so he does a lot of talking sometimes. He suggests some options sometimes. And the church has a tendency to go, well, you know, that did used to make me comfortable. That did used to make me happy. And so maybe, maybe we uh, underestimate the adversary. Maybe it's because this discussion is about a spiritual reality. It has no tangible weight to it. It's a declaration God made over his people. I can't put it on a plaque and give it to you and have you go, oh, there it is. There's my deadness to sin. God just said, my people are covered by my righteous robes, and I put to death the old man who was stuck dead in his transgressions and sins. He's been liberated, and he's free now. So, so maybe it's because it has no, it has no uh, reality in the sense that I could grab it, hold it, see it. It's a spiritual transaction. Or, or possibly, it's just my failure. My failure just tells me more about why I doubt this, because I just trip up all the time. If it's true, Tim, then why am I so drawn to sin? I think there's lots of reasons, but here's what Paul says. Let me remind you, verse 2 and 3. He asks the questions, uh, the question, are we to continue in sin? He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin? There's a reality. There's a reality. How can you go on if you're already dead to sin? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Man, there's some serious truth here. Christ united us in his death towards sin and he killed the old man. If you're gonna have victory over sin, you have to know that that's real. Not feel it, know it, get it? We'll get back to that theme in just a little bit because that's how Paul finishes this text. Here's the second truth, okay? We got the first truth, understand our identity in his death. Here's the second truth. Identify our identity in his resurrection. That's what he says in 5 and verse 8. He says, for if we've been united with him or since we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8 says, now if I have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. The resurrection has two realities to it. There's always been a now and a later to the resurrection. There is a now to the victory over sin and the life of of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, the power of God working through us, and the grace to survive it all. That's a current, everyday, right now reality for Christians. And yes, there's a future for tomorrow. I would call it the motivation of the church. 
Like the promises of God are changing us now, but to be honest with you, we're gonna fight against the flesh until we die, but someday, someday God's gonna glorify our bodies and we're gonna be like him because we're gonna see him like he is, amen? Amen, there's motivation there. There's a complete freedom there. But the resurrection tells us lots of stories. One of the stories of the resurrection tells us is that God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. I mean, just think about it. What if Jesus stayed in the grave? He'd just be another tragic figure in a long line of men who presented themselves as the answer. Jesus rose from the dead to prove that God accepted his death for your sin and my sin. No more doubt. God is not going, well, we'll see. This one's kind of a knucklehead. He needs an extra measure. I'm not certain my Jesus can handle him. It's certain. I don't care who you are in here. I don't care what you drag around. I don't know what your habits are or what your secrets are. I'm just saying to you that if you trust in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, okay, God has accepted Jesus' death to cover your sins. And his resurrection from the dead says, God says, I accept it. I accept that sacrifice. In fact, when he rose, it was declaration that all the debt had been paid. We saw this in Romans 4 when Paul is talking about the the promise of God realized through faith. He says, um, verse 22, this is why faith was counted to him as righteous, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Now he's talking about Abraham, right? But he says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's a problem between sin and God. It's called sin. And it separates us. God is holy and he can't tolerate sin. Jesus justifies sinners and punishes sin so completely God sees it no more. Amen? That's the reality that resurrection does for us. It is the word of God that he accepts that sacrifice. The other thing the resurrection does for us, it tells us that there is a life to come. Jesus said this in John chapter 11. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Church, is there something to look forward to? Of course there is. Jesus promised that. The resurrection tells us that uh, Jesus is with us now. The parting words from Christ to his disciples and to the church. He's ascending into heaven. He says, now you you guys, go and do what I did. Go and make disciples among all nations and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you and baptize them in my name. And just to make it really clear, understand this. I am with you till the very end. I'm going nowhere. God in his presence, the Holy Spirit is with us now, church. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. There's, a, there's another truth about the resurrection. I love this part. We have an advocate. It tells us that Jesus is our advocate in heaven. Listen to what he says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Give me the answer. We'll try that again. What's the answer? No one, nothing can separate us from love of God. So when you're stuck in some bad pattern, when the adversary wants to say to you, church, that I'm not so certain if this um, salvation is truly yours, if your life doesn't give you confidence, 
If fear is kind of your, your version of existence, right? Jesus is speaking on our behalf to the Father, saying, this one belongs to me. You could have this puny, crippled, weak, distorted version of faith. The scriptures imply all sorts of stories of people who had like very small expressions and yet real. And, and Jesus, our Savior, is our advocate in heaven who speaks a better word than our struggles. Amen? The resurrection tells us of the power to follow God. Everything we're talking about, really, really, all this victory over sin, it's possible. In fact, Paul, the same writer in Ephesians chapter 6, tells the church to be strong in the Lord and the power that he provides, right? And to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. I mean, whatever we need for life and godliness, God has provided. There's not one missing piece. The resurrection does all that. So let's back up and look at this again. Two truths. The truth, the victory over sin, that we are united in his death. The old man's been killed. Here's the second truth. We've been raised to new life in the power of Christ and identity with Jesus. I'm gonna finish with one practice. By the way, this is the very first time in six chapters Paul has given the church anything to do. First command. It's in verse 11. Very interesting that we've been buried in doctrine, and I mean that in a good sense. Paul has overwhelmed the church with the right things to think, the, the truths about God and his gospel for us. And in verse 11 is the first time he mentions, okay, get busy. And, and by the way, we're getting ready to hear a whole bunch of these do's, okay? Not in response to how to be saved, but, but in response to being saved and feeling God's grace and knowing God's grace. So he says in verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus, the verb there is consider. That's the first action, the first practice. You might have a version that uses the word count yourself dead to sin. We don't, we don't throw around uh, Greek words very often, but this one's helpful because it has a couple of thoughts in it. The word is legitimai, and the, we get the word log from it, like, a, like an accountant, a bookkeeping term that would log like facts or numbers based on a certain count, um, a reality that the log would represent what you have. And then we get the other word, logic. So it's the idea of objective reasoning, someone who sees something and comes to a right conclusion based on those particulars, right? So just now think of what Paul has said. I want you to log the reality of what Jesus did. I want you to logically think about it. The point that he's making here is that the only way to truly count something or to consider it logical is if it's true. In, in other words, this pushes against everything in our society. Paul is not suggesting to us or to the church to apply the practice of positive thinking. Hey, come on, guys. Be happy. Just think that it's true. Believe somehow that somehow God would do something for you. Just feel good about what God has done and you, you'll see victory. He's not saying that. He's not suggesting at all that, that our feelings be manipulated to participate. He's suggesting that our minds be changed by truth and we count up what God has done in his death and resurrection and we logically conclude that the power is more mighty in me, working in me through the spirit of God than everything else that my world or my life or my body has a tendency to tell me, right? So this is about a mind change to acknowledge the truth of something that's already true. Now, occasionally I get stuff in the mail. Now, I don't, I don't, pick up the mail at my house. My wife is also the one who does that is too. And um, the other day, they, I, we got something in the mail I thought was interesting. I thought I'd use it as a way to describe what I'm talking about. There was this advertisement 
At least that's what I think it is. And it had a really weird thing I've never seen before. There was like a computer chip thing in it. There was like this circle plastic thing, and it had a computer chip. You hit a button, and a number would come up. Really weird. And it was glued to this paper. And you would take this computer chip, and if the number matched the number on the paper, lucky you. You win a car, you win money, or a vacation, right? That's what it said. Well, I'm not stupid. I don't think I am. If it was true, I'd be the first one down there saying, where's my car? Because I got this computer chip. But I knew that it was simply a more clever way to get me down to a car dealership to get me to buy a car. It had nothing to it, nothing true. So guess what I did with it? Yeah, I played with it. No, (laughs) I threw it away. (laughs) Some would say of Jesus and the gospel, that's exactly what it's like for us. Some would say, when you tell him about the hope of Christ and that his death is applied to you and his life is given to you, some would say, isn't that nice for you? That's so good you found something that works. They would describe Jesus and the gospel as your crutch because they have their own and everybody has one and so as long as you find something to lean on, good to go. Nothing could be farther from what, what Paul is saying here. Paul says, count it, consider it, logically conclude that the riches of God already provided in Jesus are yours and all of the implications, all of them. We've been studying this passage for six months. It's, uh, it's six chapters we've gone through so far. Paul commands us to count. Here's why. Because the truest thing about us, church, isn't what we feel, but what God declares is true over us. Amen. See, that's where we get kind of sideways. I know we sin and why we sin, because we want to. And at that moment, we feel like it will make us happy. Sin never delivers, and it always lies. I know that. It's called regret. It's the, it's the morning after. Every Christian knows what that's like. But here's the, here's the truest thing about the church. Isn't that somehow I feel that the death of Christ is so perfectly provided for me that the old man is dead? It's because Jesus declared it. He said it. Isn't that somehow I feel like all the resurrection power that Jesus talks about and Paul remembers and and reminds the church is somehow mine on tap all the time? I don't necessarily feel that all the time, but I know it to be true. And so Paul is saying, if you want to see victory over sin so you don't continue in sin, then you better hang on to these two truths and then spend your time contemplating them. You're dead to that old man. You're alive to Jesus Christ. Right? You're able now for the first time not to sin. You are brought to new life where you're, God's no longer at war with you because of your sin. You have a life to come. You have Jesus with you now. We have an advocate before the Father, and he's provided the power to live. Amen? Amen? So the simple, the simple practice to leave here with, go and count that. Go tabulate out that reality over your struggles and your weaknesses. When one side of the old tracks, tendencies, and inclinations and habits of your former old man start to bark orders like it's still in charge, you have to remind yourself it isn't in charge anymore. There is a Lord over your life. His name is Jesus. Consider that. Count that. And when you fall, get right back up, claim the grace of God and the gospel, and and move ahead. Amen? Amen. Right? Victory over sin begins in our mind. Let's pray together.
God, I thank you for the death of Christ for our sins. I thank you that all the punishment and all the consequences for my sin and failure have been settled at the cross. And I thank you also that the life and the power I need has been given in his resurrection. God, help us as your church to consider those things, to log those things and count those things. God, help us as we walk out of here today to see that you have freed us now to love you and obey you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, church. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless.